Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. And this week we have... Lone Wolf and Cub. Welcome a bit of escapism into samurai darkness. <laughs> but before we get into that, what have you been up to since last week, Johanna? I started my new job at Eventive, which is a, a really exciting opportunity to be on the ground floor in the film industry during this insane moment of transition. And I'll be helping theaters and festivals figure out how to exist in a hybrid world. So I'm really excited. Rosie, how about you? Any movie-related news since the last time? Not really, but I but we have been dipping into the archives with some older films. Um, I don't know if Green Lantern counts, but I can't believe that movie is as old as it is now. You know, that's the one that Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively are in, which they're married now. And it, it's kind of funny to see him as Green Lantern after seeing him as... Um, Deadpool, right? He's Deadpool, Deadpool, thank you, yes. Yeah. I love how she says, I've seen you naked. <laughs> like, you think because I can't see your eyebrows, I, don't, I won't know who you are or whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, have you seen Green Lantern First Flight? This is, in my opinion, the best Green Lantern film that's been made. It's essentially like Training Day. Did you ever see Training Day? Not sure. I may have. Training Day was a film with, I think it was Denzel Washington, and he's training a new rookie cop. I forget who plays the rookie cop. It's Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hot. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Denzel is, of course, streetwise, a little corrupt or a lot corrupt, and Ethan Hawke has to learn the ropes from him contrasting the ideals of what the LAPD is supposed to be with the reality on the street. Green Lantern First Flight is that in the Green Lantern Corps with Sinestro as the corrupt lantern. And it's kind of the same idea in space. It's really kind of cool, I think. Anyway, now that we had that long tangent about something having nothing to do with today's episode, <laughs> except possibly the comic book basis, which is not small. Right. Um, and I guess the Green Lanterns are kind of like samurai. So there is that. There is that. Let's get into it. It's a Jedi Geki film, which is basically Japanese for period drama. Okay. Although most of our Star Wars fans will automatically recognize the word Jedi in there. I totally just did. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, that's where Lucas got his term for Jedi, because most Jedi Geki films are Chenbara, which are swordplay films, usually set in the Edo period of Japan, which was akin to the warring states period in ancient Greece or India or China, where there were a bunch of different fiefdoms, much like medieval Europe, in fact. And all these fiefdoms were run by local lords known as daimyos. They had their own armies, and they had elite soldiers in those armies, roughly akin to knights. Those were samurai. And ruling over all the daimyos was one shogun. And the capital city was Edo, which is now modern-day Tokyo. So that's why it's called the Edo period. The shogun family that ruled from 1603 to 1868 was the Tokugawa shogunate. So it's sometimes known as the Tokugawa era 
Okay, that little background out of the way and talk about the manga. So manga, first of all, for those who aren't familiar, manga is Japanese cartooning. It has a distinctive style. And in fact, in Japan, the term manga refers more to the style than the medium. So when we talk about comic books, we're talking about the physical medium often. And in Japan, manga refers more to the style of cartooning. The style is more familiar to people in the West because it's used in anime, which is the animated version of manga. Anime has become super popular in the last couple of decades in the US. So I think most people who are listening to this would be familiar with that. Manga are usually in black and white and usually serialized in large digest forms. Everybody don't write into us and tell us how we mispronounce stuff. One, we're not Japanese experts. And two, we're not language uh, linguists either. So I don't want to hear about it this time. We're, we're going to pronounce Japanese words left and right wrong throughout this episode, including names. <laughs> and, and maybe our Japanese history will be off too. But we try to do our best. And we beg forgiveness. <laughs> That's right. We're just film fans. Just film fans. Anyway, one manga, Kotsure Okami, which literally translates to wolf taking along his child, has been translated into the English as lone wolf and cub by writer Katsuo Koike and artist Goseki Kojima. It's one of the most successful manga of all time. It uh, is a historical fiction that tells the tale of how in 1965, the Ogami clan disappeared from Japanese history forever always been sort of a mystery what happened to them. They were replaced by the Yagyu clan. In this fictional version, the Yagyu clan frames the Ogami clan and kills them all, with the sole survivors being Ogami Ito and his three-year-old son, Daigoro, who embark on a quest of revenge against the Yagyu clan. That's the basics of the comics. I'm going to freely admit I have only ever read the first volume, The Assassin's Road. The is big. It was released in 1970 in Japan, and it sold 8 million copies in its initial run. Wow. There are 28 volumes of the manga. Each runs more than 300 pages for a total of 8,700 pages for the whole series. That's all I have on the background of the manga except that it was, of course, adapted into film in the early 70s. Just to remind us all of what was going on globally in 1970, because it will be relevant. In March, uh, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty goes into effect, ratified by 56 nations, including the U.S. and Japan. There was an attempted assassination of King Hussein of Jordan in September, precipitating the Black September crisis, which ended up drawing in Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, Israel, kind of a whole mess in that area of the world. The conflict in Vietnam was going on. Richard Nixon was president of the United States. And this is relevant. Because in Japan, meanwhile, back at the ranch, there was um, some controversy about how friendly Japan should be with the U.S. in terms of all of the stuff going on in the world. 
I was surprised to discover that the emperor of Japan in 1970 was still Hirohito, the same guy who was emperor during World War II. The only slap on the wrist he <laughs> was given was they declared that the emperor was no longer descended from God and an imperial figure, but was instead more of a constitutional monarch. At this point, and up until really about 1990, people continued to believe that Hirohito during World War II was no more than a powerless figurehead, and he was not directly responsible for Japan's role in World War II or Pearl Harbor. Historians now see that he had a great deal more involvement and influence in all of those affairs. But at the time in 1970, he was still emperor and was somewhat marginalized in terms of his political role. The role of the emperor in Japan has come and gone in different eras to different degrees of strength. And the movies we're watching, which take place during the Edo period, are a time when the emperor is less involved with the shogun being much more powerful than the emperor when it comes to practical matters of state. I wouldn't necessarily draw a parallel between the shogun and the prime minister, but I wonder if there is a little bit of a political commentary since Eisaku Sato, who was the prime minister of Japan, was also seen as a somewhat controversial figure. He was in sort of the liberal democratic party and during his time, there was this great period of economic growth But at the same time, there was a lot of backlash against his policies because he was friendly with the U.S. Sato had to walk this kind of fine line between the U.S. and China and establishing relations that would set Japan up for success with those two rival powers. Sato tended to be friendly towards the U.S., agreed to this nuclear non-proliferation treaty, more or less turned a blind eye to what was happening in Vietnam, etc. And so I'd like to go back to why this manga was written and a little bit about the author, Katsuo Koike, who created this story because at the time in the early 70s in Japan, family life was starting to fall apart. The connection between children and parents was fraying. And in part, this was because there was a lot of political turmoil. The new left movement was dissolving into infighting and violence. And on the far right side of the political spectrum, a notable moment was in 1970, a novelist Yukio Mishima, who I confess I hadn't heard of, but he was very prolific and was considered for a Nobel Prize at one point. But I found most interesting, he had written a play called My Friend Hitler, if that gives you any perspective on what his politics might have been. Oh my. He very much opposed these pro-U.S., pro-liberal policies of Prime Minister Sato, and he tried to organize this violent insurrection to take over the Japan self-defense forces in a coup d'etat. But Mishima fails to totally sway the public opinion, in part because the economy was really good. So a lot of people didn't see this as a huge problem and committed suicide in a very gory samurai-style seppuku self-disembowelment and self-beheading, which, just to set the stage for, that's 1970 and where where people are in terms of violence, 
samurai culture and politics. And so this manga was meant to, in some ways, heal what was going on in Japan at the time. Anyone who's interested in the story about Mishima, there is an excellent film biography called Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. It's really great. I highly recommend it. Thanks, Eric, for breaking in there. I have to say I'm very intrigued after getting just that very brief detail about how his story ended. So Koiki um, wanted to create this story that centered father-son relationships, but also drew on a lot of the popular appeal of samurai stories. So he creates this lone wolf and cub figure which was immediately recognized as being perfect for some kind of film adaptation. Originally, it was set to be a made-for-TV movie, but they started trying to figure out who was going to be the star of this film. Their first choice was Tetsuya Watari, who had starred in Tokyo Drifter, but he had fallen ill and so was unable to take the part. Their next choice was Shintaro Katsu, a multi-talented star of kabuki theater. He was a singer. He played traditional instruments. He was a world-class hellraiser. You know, multiple arrests, drug use, a real character. He looked at the part, was kind of interested, but what he felt more strongly about was bringing this story to the big screen, not the television screen. So he signed on as a producer with Katsu Productions and decided that they were going to make this a full feature film for a theatrical release. They still didn't have a star yet. Good news is Shintaro Katsu's brother was more than happy to volunteer himself for the lead. Tomisabaru Wakayama was a huge fan of the manga and badly wanted the part, but he also wanted the blessing of the creator Katsuo Koike. So he showed up at his house with a wooden Bokutu samurai sword and despite the fact that Wakayama was a little doughy and not the muscle-bound strapping samurai that had been portrayed in the manga, he showed off his swordplay skills and acrobatics and won the author's approval. There was a little bit of drama in terms of getting this off the ground because uh, Wakayama was an actor who was represented by a different studio, and this was back in the day where you belonged to the studio that you were working for. So there needed to be some negotiation between Toei Studios and Katsu Productions, but they ultimately granted him permission to star in the film, and the rest is history. I feel like we have done a lot of films that influenced Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> last week we did faster pussycat kill kill which tarantino was talking about remaking and i believe this is another one that he was talking about remaking at some point but it definitely was a huge influence on kill bill which just mimics scenes from this in fact there is a scene where the bride is going to bed with the daughter okay kind of a lone wolf and cub situation there and they're talking about watching shogun assassin the direct reference to this film this is not the only film that was adapted from works by Koike. The other famous one is Lady Snowblood, which is a direct inspiration for Kill Bill. And I hope we get a chance to watch Lady Snowblood at some point in the future. So many movies, so little time, you know? <laughs> it influenced a lot of directors. John Carpenter, there's a scene 
straight out of Big Trouble in Little China that is pretty much lifted from this film. I'd say in the West, there are three very famous cinematic samurais. One is Sanjuro from the Kurosawa films. One is Zatoichi, films that were also directed by Kenji Misumi, who directed this film. And played by Katsu. And it's one of the main reasons why he didn't end up taking this particular role was that he was still working on projects as Zatoichi, the blind monsieur turned samurai. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it's interesting the professions that these, <laughs> the, that these samurai had beforehand. And we'll talk about Ogami Ito in the story. He was the executioner for the shogun. Now, I want to clarify what that means because people tend to think of executioner as someone who assassinates people, someone who, you know, you're condemned to execution, then the executioner is the person with the black hood and the axe and he cuts your head off or the person that fires the bullet in, in the firing squad, whatever the case is. Executioners during the Tokugawa period were slightly different. If you had the displeasure of the shogun or whatever, it was on you to commit seppuku or harakiri. So the person who was going to die actually killed themselves using a tanto or a short blade, and they would disembowel themselves, making a slash across their chest and abdomen, really killing themselves. But because self-disembowelment is an extremely painful way to die, there was someone whose job it was to hold the large sword, like a katana, and decapitate the person after they had disemboweled themselves so that they died quickly and wouldn't suffer. They've already done the honorable thing. That was Ogami Ito's job, doing the decapitation. It was considered an honor to hold that position. And in our fictional universe, the Yagyu clan wants that honor. They want to take up that one of the three major jobs, the other being the spies and the ninjas. Okay, so now that we've gotten into how this influenced John Woo, John Carpenter, John Melius, and other directors like Quentin Tarantino, what did you guys think? I thought it was fascinating because I honestly did not know what I was walking into with this film. I am a Tarantino fan, been a Tarantino fan for quite a while. So I did see a lot of the similarities during the fight scenes with the blood and, and all of that. But I really liked the story. It opened my mind up to a whole new world. And with everything going on right now, it's kind of nice to be able to do that. It was a very fascinating story. You know, I really was brokenhearted when, you know, his whole family was assassinated. And I really enjoyed the fight scenes and the vengeance he was able to get. It was a fascinating film watching his journey. And I really wish that every three-year-old behaved as well as his three-year-old. Um, <laughs> can we talk about that? Because, you know, Joanna, you and I are both moms. <laughs> Having kids that age, that age, they do not sit that still. And so this kid, I think he was already an acting genius from the time he was born. <laughs> he was incredible. The, the, chi the child who plays the, the cub is, yeah, amazing. I know. And adorable too. Very adorable. I really enjoyed the film. I, I like I liked the places it, it's taken me. I'm happy to hear that it was part of a six-part series because I that's something that I would actually sit down and watch and enjoy. 
the plot is very complex. A lot of these samurai films, they're like soap operas with intricate plots. And like we said, this is a very, very lengthy comic series. And they tried to distill a lot into one movie, which I feel is the opposite of what's popular with American audiences, which is very simple stories. For example, we watched Red Sun, which was another samurai film. But it had a very simple plot about recovering a stolen sword. You know, it came out around the same time. Red Sun was 1972. It was the same year. Both show the influence of spaghetti westerns. Well, Red Sun is a spaghetti western. This, right from that opening credit music, it was a really interesting because I was expecting it to start with like traditional Japanese flute music. No, it was this music that was like half Ennio Morricone spaghetti western music and half psychedelic rock like mm -hmm. i was like whoa mm -hmm. i was digging that yeah yeah well i'm glad you mentioned the sound design and the music because that was one of the most interesting pieces of the film and helped greatly determine whether you were watching a flashback sequence or whether you were watching something in the current time because in the flashback sequences they cut out all of the diegetic noise it's really just the sound of the swords or just the dialogue and otherwise all the birds of the rushing water or everything cut out. It was a really cool sound design choice to make you focus on the parts that he was remembering or, you know, what, what about the encounter really stuck with him. I confess there were times where I wasn't sure, wait, which, you know, are we in the present or are we in the past right now? And then, you know, the sound design would give me that cue. I, it was a good choice, I thought. My reaction to this was that I really liked it. It's not my favorite samurai film, but I did like it a lot. And I know from having seen Shogun Assassin, the film that edits this and the second one, that this is just the beginning. It's one of those series where it's only going to get better in the second one. I really hope that our audiences will stick with this through the series, because I have to say in the opening scene, when you watch him murder a child, m murder, execute, execute a child, I actually had to pause the film and walk away because I was, I, I really didn't want it to have happened. And, you know, they don't show it. It's one of the few moments where they spare the audience, the, the graphic images. Showing the execution of a child would have been just the line that they decided to draw. But... I had to pause and walk away just to reset a little bit of like, okay, this is the film I signed up for. Now I'm ready to keep going. And what's great about the opening sequence is that it, it establishes right away what the stakes are. We're so used to watching films where children don't die. Children have plot armor in a lot of Western films. And so setting it up from the beginning of like, no, Degoro does not have plot armor. <laughs> and it's, you know, there is every chance at any moment in any of these encounters that he could be killed. So it's an essential piece of storytelling in order to set up the stakes for the rest of the film, but it was a lot for the opening scene. Rosie, as a mother, what did you think? Well, first of all, I think it was pretty badass that he was able to fight off all of these other people with a kid strapped to him. <laughs> And not distracting him because I would be completely distracted <laughs> as a parent. <laughs> um, and, and I just, yeah, at, at the beginning when when that started, I was like, 
I, I did that thing where, you, you know, when you're, when you're watching something and you know, it's going to be gory and you don't want to see it, but you feel like you have to. And, and so it's almost like a clockwork work orange mo- moment where you feel like your eyes are like stuck open because you want to see it, you know, but you don't want to see it, but you have to see it because this is what you signed up for. So I went ahead and watched it and I was so thankful that it cut away before, you, you know, it cut away. It told you, the film told you what happened without showing you what, what happened. And I was thankful for that because I really don't handle situations in movies like that very well. There's still some scenes that I still can't like ever since having kids. And, and I'm sure that maybe some of our listeners can relate to this. Like having children changes things when you watch movies and television. Things that didn't affect you before, they affect you now more so than you ever expected to. You know, I used to be able to watch Blood, Guts, and Gore all the time. And then once I had a kid, like I couldn't even watch Taken. So it, it just, it took me a long time to get to the point where I could watch that film and not just like want to crawl into a hole and hide from it because it, it just affects me on a level that it never affected me before. So when, you know, when they say having kids changes things, it changes things on so many levels. It, sometimes you don't even expect it, like when you're watching a movie. <laughs> so since I didn't know anything about the story going into this, I had this wishful thinking moment where, you know, after it cuts away from the execution, it then goes straight to the present moment of showing, um, Ito and his son and I really wanted to believe that somehow he hadn't executed the child that they had escaped and run away together and it took a it, it took like a good 20 minutes into the film before I had convinced myself like nope it's a different kid yeah. <laughs> it's a different kid I don't know who this kid is I'll have to find out but it's not the one that I wanted to not be dead oh no <laughs> I should say I've only read the first installment of the manga and that is the only scene that is not in the manga. It does not have that first opening scene where he executes a child. I don't know if that's going to appears in one of the later volumes or if that's something they added. I'm surprised at your guys' reactions a little bit. Now, full disclosure to the audience, I don't have kids. Johanna asked me when we were going to do this if this was appropriate to watch with her son, who is now about 12, right? Yeah. And I said, I don't know. I haven't seen it. And then I wrote, text her back and I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I, I'd like to hear what, what you think about that. Before I say that, I want to say, as samurai films go, it's really interesting that this film, from what anecdotal evidence I can find, ratings and stuff like that, seems to have a larger following or more highly rated among women in their 30s to 40s than most samurai films do and i find that a little strange given that we were talking about ryan reynolds and stuff at the top and this guy he ain't that we're talking (laughs) dad bod we're talking definitely not the hunk type yet somehow this one is the series that's more popular with women in their 30s and 40s if anyone wants to say any more about that go for it I'm just going to speak into it because anybody that can use a samurai sword with a kid strapped to him is a badass. (laughs) No, he may not be very attractive, but the man has skills. He can carry a kid around and kick ass at the same time. And often a lot of us women in our thirties and forties, we take on a lot, you know what I mean? And so when you, when you see the samurai kicking ass and taking names with a kid strapped to him, it's, it's, it's kind of in a way it's kind of relatable because we take on a lot while we're raising kids and running a household 
and still having to, you know, go to work every day and, and do everything like that. So it's nice to see a man in that role, you know, especially in an older film. Yeah, I agree with Rosie. And I saw a huge difference between this and some of the Kurosawa films that I had seen before and felt like I could appreciate from a filmmaking standpoint, but didn't connect with emotionally, if that makes sense. One exception being Rashomon, which is an incredible film and is a really interesting one to look at now in our gaslighting culture of blaming the victim and not believing women's stories. Highly recommend revisiting Rashomon if you have a chance. But one of the things I really liked about Lone Wolf and Cub Sword of Vengeance was how emotionally connected I felt to the hero, even though he was not a good guy. And not not a good guy in the way Han Solo's not a good guy. I mean, he killed a child and still I felt empathy and concern for what was going to happen to him. And that was pretty impressive in, in terms of weaving that kind of story. Even though there are moments of objectification, rape, forced sex, women don't get a great role in this film, but they are portrayed sympathetically. The prostitute in the village with the hot springs is actually a pretty compelling character. And when she chases after him at the end of the film, she's sort of speaking for a lot of women watching the film, thinking, this guy seems like a pretty good guy. He's taking care of his kid. He's defending the defenseless. He's a good guy. And then the film makes very clear, okay, but it's more complicated than that. <laughs> He's also cursed. He's also on this demonic path, which I was going to ask you, Eric, whether you saw that critique reading about the film and people's interpretations of it. There's a lot of language about the road to hell and that he's a demon or he's leading this path towards darkness. And a lot of, I wouldn't say Christianized language around, you know, demons and hell and whatnot. But did you get that sense from the film that it, it's indicating he's on this demonic path to hell? Yes. The road of Mei Fumato is the quest to kill the Shogun and Mei Fumato gets roughly translated as the road to hell. The visual that we get of him walking with water on one side and flames on the other side is literally supposed to be the road to hell. I think there is no doubt that there is a kabuki theater aspect to this of demons and demonic forces in his way. In fact, some of the later installments refer to hell, the underworld, the baby card of the river sticks. That is a recurring theme, even though the actual action is very historical and not one of these wild action films like Big Trouble in Little China that's just wild martial arts where you get all kinds of crazy special effects and things like that. This is much more realistic and down to earth, but it has an overwhelming feel of demonic forces opposing him. Thinking about this film as being more realistic than Big Trouble Little China, one of the things I find interesting to consider is the cartoonish violence and the amount of fake blood or people having their legs literally cut out from under them and the legs standing there. <laughs> that there, there are some really interesting, playful kinds of use of violence in this film. 
I, I'd be interested to hear what you two think about whether we're supposed to think of that violence literally or whether it's supposed to remove us from the action a little bit and make us think about either these darker forces at work or just a different interpretation of how that violence is being used. I was wondering myself when I was watching it, I fully appreciated the effects here. It was really cool to see how they represented the violence in the fight scenes. And I was just wondering, like, when they had those scenes, if that was a callback to the manga itself, because I haven't read the manga. I just wonder if there weren't those specific scenes in the manga and they wanted to make sure that it was represented in the film. Um, but I, w- I really like that. And also, you know, again, you can see the influence on the Tarantino films and those action scenes. Okay, so the violence is an interesting topic here. First of all, the manga, it, if you remember, it's in black and white. So a lot of times you see these smears and smudges on the page. And is that supposed to be blood? You're not really sure what's dirt, what's blood, what's, you know, despite the fact that the artist has a very clean line style, it gets a little more obscure. I think some of this is a reference to older styles of Japanese painting where you see samurai watercolors and there's what you know is blood coming off of the different people that they've cut down. I think they definitely wanted to make it somewhat cartoony as a callback to its origins from the comics but I don't know exactly why they chose that particular look. But one of my favorite scenes, he, he kills some guy and the guy's in the deep background. Then you see him go by in the background, just spurting out blood. Out of his <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's definitely one of the things that makes the movie fun. All the colorful blood spraying everywhere. And it, yeah, you're right. It's definitely like red paint type blood. It's not like, you know, so I don't know. I, I, it's a weird thing. I, is it supposed to be extremely gory? Is it supposed to be kind of cartoony? I don't know. It's some kind of weird middle ground. I feel like because of that middle ground, it was slightly easier to watch. If it would have been gory, it would have been harder for me to watch. I really appreciated that aspect. And I, I don't know. I personally feel like maybe it was a callback to the manga just because of, of the way it was styled and, and how the blood did actually look like paint rather than blood to, you know, very distinctly be like, this is blood. (laughs) This is blood (laughs) spurting everywhere. It's something you see in a lot of martial arts films, not just this. And this definitely has a lot of the martial arts tropes, like the plot of just about every martial arts film. Almost everyone has some degree of, you killed my master and now (laughs) I'm going to kill you. I mean, that's even in Star Wars, right? And so it's emulating other martial arts films. Also, as we mentioned, some cross-pollinization going on between this and Spaghetti Westerns, which were also more violent, but in a slightly cartoony way than previous Westerns had been. I will say that it was kind of cool seeing him use other weapons besides the ubiquitous katana. He also uses the uh, naginata, which is what we would call like a pole arm in Western arms and armor, you know, that blade on the end of a long pole, which he got out of the cart. Like the cart, he uses it in a bunch of different ways. It's like bulletproof the bottom, like he holds that up to stop bullets. He's got like hidden in all the parts of the cart are all these different weapons. So it's not just like a conveyance for Daigoro. It's also his mobile arsenal. That was incredible. I, I wasn't sure whether we were going to save that or spoil it for the audience, but the film is worth it just for the sequence with the 
heavily armed baby cart. I, as a mom, would love to trick out my strollers like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I gotta say, it kind of it kind of reminded me of Transformers because. <laughs> There were just so many cool things hidden in that baby cart. You know, it's it's not just a stroller anymore. <laughs> Food and drink pairings. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. And what to drink. All right. So this time I'm going to say that it may sound boring. But samurai embraced simplicity. And in the movie, they refer to koku uh, as a method of payment. And that was an amount of rice that could feed a man for a year. And samurai were paid in koku. In general, about 100 koku. So that shows you how many people they could employ. So they had their own retainers. But koku is basically rice. It's using rice as commerce. Taxes were collected in koku. So I think the perfect thing to pair this with is a bowl of rice. I had a bowl of white rice last night when I watched this. Samurai were probably eating a kind of brown rice, but whatever, a bowl of rice. And I drank green tea. The perfect thing to have with this film is a bowl of rice and a cup of green tea. So that you can be centered while, while you're watching all of the mayhem and destruction. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we saw that in every samurai film we've seen where they're like that unflappable Bushido warrior, right? They take the sword, they cut and kill down a ton of people. And then they're just like, stand there completely in the moment. And that's it, you know? It's like <laughs> that scene where the Yagyu clan agrees to let him go if he removes the crest of the Otami clan. Am I saying that? Did I get it right this time? I probably said it wrong. Ogami clan, sorry. If he agrees to take off the crest and fight their best warrior. And of course he's going to lose because you take advantage of everything. And the Yagyu clan has the sun at, at the back of their warrior in his eyes. So of course their warrior is going to triumph. But then he has, you know, on his back, he's got Daigoro and Daigoro on his forehead as a mirror, right? <laughs> so like turning the uh, advantage back to Ito. I love that stuff. But I do think that, that amidst all the violence being centered with just one bowl of rice, one cup of green tea, that's all you need for this film. <laughs> okay. Anyone that's interested in reading this, uh, going back to the original source material, it's a lot easier to acquire than it ever has been in the past because Dark Horse Digital has put all of the Lone Wolf and Cub manga online. So if you go to their website, you can find that. Okay, let's get into Lone Wolf and Cub, Baby Card at the River Sticks. The second in the very long series of Lone Wolf and Cub movies. Right around the, the time the film was made, I kind of focused on 1972, which the year started out fairly interesting because Yokoi Shoichi... Uh, he was a former lieutenant of the Imperial Japanese Army. He uh, had lived in a cave for 28 years following World War II and was found by some shrimpers. And his cave still to this day, well, 
cave. I say in quotation marks because it's not the original cave. It was ruined by a tsunami, but it is a tourist attraction. There's a cave like near the original one where you can actually go and visit in Japan, which is very fascinating. I'd be interested to go check that out because this guy totally lived off the land for 28 years. And the last eight, he was completely by himself. Everybody else that he was living with, which apparently was a common occurrence for Japanese soldiers just to go into hiding after the war if they survived rather than come back. He was there with nine other people, actually, which was amazing. And he had other people that had left and he would actually go visit them. But he stayed underground, lived under on the off the land. I want to break in here and say that anyone who's interested in that story, I highly recommend checking out another podcast, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. He has a series called Supernova in the East, in which he tells the story of that Japanese soldier. Thank you so much. Also, the 1972 Winter Olympics were held in Sapporo, uh, Hokkaido. The uh, Asamo Sanso incident occurred uh, in uh, Kuruzawa. I don't know how to pronounce that. I know you're going to have to edit the shit out of this. <laughs> Karu- Karuizawa, that was a hostage crisis in a mountain lodge that lasted for about nine days in February of 1972. There was also a fire in a department store in Osaka that killed 118, injured 78. Okinawa returned to Japan after being occupied by the U.S. military for 27 years on May 15th. For 10 days in July, from the 3rd to the 13th, there was a heavy torrential downpour with debris flow that hit Kyushu and Shikoku area. According to the fire and disaster management officials, uh, the confirmed report was 447 people lost their lives and 1,056 people were wounded from that. Also in July, the MOS burger was found, which over in Japan, they are just as popular as McDonald's and they are still running today. November 1972, an express passenger train caught fire in Hokuriku Rail Tunnel, and that was in Suruga Fuki Prefecture. According to the Japan Transport Ministry officials, confirmed a report that 31 lives were lost and 714 people were wounded. And then finally, December 10th, they had the general election of 1972, where the Liberal Democratic Party won 271 out of 491 seats. What did you think of the film? So during the first few minutes, I was wondering what is going to be different about this film? Because from the opening sequences, you can sort of tell that they're upping the ante a little bit on the violence. But I was wondering what new ground is this film going to cover that was not in Sword of Vengeance? And more is more is maybe one way to put it. I would say so. This has better cinematography more blood, more action. It's got more interesting enemies. Yeah, well, that was one of the... So the two things that I really liked and took away from this film was the Lady Ninjas was... I did not expect to see Lady Ninjas show up anywhere in this series, given how macho the first film was. And even though the Lady Ninjas did not really stand a chance against Ito, it was still... I was surprised to see the degree of respect they were treated with within the film, that they totally dismember another ninja between the nine of them, cutting off one appendage after another, establishing them as serious fighters. 
And then even in their encounters with Ito, they are treated more or less with respect. There's like a slight cut to like woman's breasts being slashed. But other than that, you know, they don't scream. They don't beg. They're, they don't act like women versions of warriors. They act like warriors. I was really impressed by that. I do want to say that there is historical precedent for this. I don't think there were a lot of female samurai, but they did exist, much like Anne Bonny and others who are female pirates or Joan of Arc as a female knight. They existed, definitely not the norm, but there is some historical evidence for there having been female samurai. I definitely enjoyed that element. I also really liked how his son, Daigoro, was given a lot more agency in this film. I wasn't sure whether the whole series was going to continue to feature Daigoro in the cart more or less as this helpless being that is that he just kind of has to drag around and protect. And it was really great to see, even in the second film, Daigoro already doing stuff on his own. I mean, not just learning to count to five, but also, you know, trying to figure out how to get him food and water when he's tired and injured. And using the cart, like knowing the weapons in the cart in order to help defend himself. And that development so quickly really surprised me and complicated the film in a nice way compared to the first one. I got to say, I loved this film. This film to me was thoroughly entertaining. There was no time where I was not like on the edge of my seat, even more so than the first film. You can see how this influenced people like Quentin Tarantino. I also loved the scenes in the sand dunes. I think the use of nature in this film is very well done. And actually just kind of beauty in general. The contrast, for instance, between the beautifully dyed indigo sheets and the violence inflicted upon people in the film, but also, you know, upon this village making the indigo and in sort of a, I guess it's more like a flash forward or a prediction of what could happen. And the soft beauty of, there's a really great shot of the ocean crashing and the trees and the desert that the film draws this really wonderful contrast between the beauty of the natural world and textures and fabric and earth tones and colors and the stark violence of what the samurais are doing and like the bright red blood and the you know limbs flying everywhere that it's you can see the polar opposites in the film and I think it does a lot for both making you appreciate the natural beauty as this respite <laughs> from the violence and to appreciate the violence as extremely violent. Yeah, that's that's the thing about it is the contrast. There's one scene where they're walking down the road and the women assassins are all posed as peasants collecting turnips or whatever. And then like the turnips become weapons like they like start flinging turnips like and one like actually goes in gets lodged into the baby cart. Yeah. Everything is beautiful. I, there's like one scene where they have to huddle together for warmth. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up that scene because when it was unfolding, um, and this is the part where we're going to put it in the trigger warning for, for our audience, um, this film ha should have a trigger warning because it got far enough into the encounter where I really was afraid for a second that Ito was going to rape this woman. 
that it was filmed in such a way to suggest that was what was happening. She was resisting and he was tearing off her clothes. And then suddenly it turns out that's not his agenda at all. He's trying to make sure they don't all get hypothermia from wearing cold, wet clothes and not having a way to keep warm. And just like it, I think what really, what I really like about this film compared to some of the other exploitation cinema I've seen, I did not feel myself desensitized at any point, which considering the amount of violence that this has, I was there for all of it. And that was a real surprise. And this this almost rape scene or this this scene that gestures at that, but then actually is like, oh no, just kidding. He is that honorable upstanding guy that you think he is. <laughs> well, it's Daigoro that gets all the action in these films. Like, yeah. <laughs> like there's more like breasts in the face of Daigoro <laughs> than ever with Ito. But I bring up that scene because it's just so beautifully filmed after you get past the part where it looks like it's going to be rape and it looks like it's going to be rape. Yeah, that's definitely a trigger warning scene. But a lot of these films are very close to their American grindhouse counterparts. I don't doubt for a minute there's an intention to make you uncomfortable. That is part of the experience. Yeah, for sure. That's what made this film different for me, even than the first one. In Sword of Vengeance, I think after a certain point, I found myself wanting to reinterpret the violence as something else. Like, oh, okay, in my mind, I'm going to pretend that these fight scenes are a ballet, and I know the blood's not real, and so I'm going to think about these fight scenes as something else. In this film, because there are so many moments of real beauty or real tenderness, it made it harder to take myself out of the violence and see it as fake. I was drawn in by the kindness that he shows his son and the clear attachment there. It kept me in the film and more invested emotionally in what was going on. I found the premise of the conflict, the indigo farmers who have this one particular artisan who's going to go betray their secrets to the shogunate who then might show up and ransack their village or something. And Ito is sent to kill this artisan. I found it interesting because the first film seemed to be so much more about honor and revenge and kind of like more emotionally grounded conflict. And so it was interesting seeing here capitalism sort of like sneak into the film. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about the main conflict or or his mission. Well, okay, so this is something that is very peculiar to the samurai genre. You see this in a lot of this kind of film. Something that I think gets a little lost in translation, American films or other, you know, European films might focus solely on revenge. That's their whole thing. But a part of becoming a ronin, a masterless samurai, is you're losing your job, right? You're also losing your income. You're losing your way of life. And, and that's all they know how to do. So a lot of ronin films, they're going around looking for hire. I mean, that is what a ronin is. It's a sellsword. It is someone who is literally... The literal translation to knights would be freelance, a freelancer. <laughs> you're basically for hire. And I think that in order to get his revenge, he knows he's got to survive long enough to do that. And so he's going to take jobs as a mercenary. And that's kind of what you get throughout the baby cart series. He's a wandering samurai looking for work, but he has his own agenda too. 
And that's kind of my take on it. The thing that I was a little disappointed in or what I would have done differently about this film and spoiler warning, I'm going to talk about the ending is that I would have ended it where he had killed his intended target and the screen was filling up with blood, blood splashing at the screen. I would have just had it splash all the way to a red wipe at the end. But the film doesn't end there. We get a few more scenes with some beautiful shots, the straw hat blowing in the wind of the on the dunes. And then inexplicably, Sayaka shows up again in the bamboo forest briefly. I don't know what that was all about. I really don't know. And maybe there's some cultural context that has been lost there. I definitely understand that Sayaka has an appreciation of motherhood and the child she didn't get to have, but I don't know that it's appropriate. It seems like the movie should end when he accomplishes the goal. I had the same feeling when I was watching the blood splatter the camera of feeling like this is such a perfect way to end it. The thing I like about bringing her back at the end is that it shows his relationship to people is complicated. I could very easily have seen that ending scene with her unfold in such a way that she gets killed. He just like doesn't want to take chances and she's behind him and he can't see her. And, you know, they have this moment where they both have their swords drawn and then she drops hers and he walks away. And I could very easily have seen that scene not going well for her. I'm not going to say that it points to him having like a code, like no women, no kids, because that's clearly not like not part of his code. But it made him seem more interesting and more complicated. I agree with you, though. It's not the right place to end the film. It would have almost been better for that scene to have somehow happened before the ending, if that makes sense. Just so that we know what happens to her. Food and drink parents. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got to tell us about that because they ate a lot of rice cakes and there there were like little rolls and things. And I was thinking about you. What's what's your food pairing for this film? Well, I didn't have a food pairing. Oh, so last time I talked about hot tea. This time I want to talk about sake, which is what I drank when I was watching this. Sake is my choice for this movie for a couple of reasons. One, they actually drink sake in the film. And unlike so many other things where samurai follow this Bushido code, which is rooted in Zen Buddhism, and Buddhism itself is very into moderation, especially when it comes to drink alcohol. But samurai, they liked their sake. There are stories about samurai getting drunk on sake and causing quite a ruckus in in towns and stuff like that it's a trope that you find throughout these jedi geki films you know the samurai get drunk and you know or the innkeeper will be like don't serve sake to the samurai you know yeah is that yojimbo yojimbo is one of the ones where mifune is like drunk the entire time yeah right yeah, yeah. it happens there it happens in a lot of them it, it's it's something that is um well associated with samurai films. So I say as an audience, we should be drinking sake too. Now I am not an expert on sake, but I am going to make some recommendations here to the audience. Do you know much about drinking sake? I only know when I've bought a bottle that is not what I really wanted. And then I look at it and I'm like, Oh no, that's plum wine. That's not sake at all. <laughs> okay. So the first thing we need to know is that plum wine is another product of Japan. 
And when we talk about sake, we, we're talking about rice wine, not plum wine. But both could be considered sake in Japan because sake just means alcoholic beverage in <laughs> Japan. So what we usually talk about is Nihonshu, which is Japanese alcoholic beverages, of which plum wine is one and what we call sake. Rice wine is another. I'm going to stick to just rice wine here. Not only am I not an expert on this, I am going to tell you some things that the experts will tell you is wrong. Okay, so I'm going to go against (laughs) expert advice. This is Eric's advice for drinking sake during Lone Wolf and Cub, Baby Carter, the River Sticks, and other samurai films. (laughs) Low quality sake is often served hot to mask the off flavors in it. Just like in America, we have a tradition of serving beer ice cold so that it hides the off flavors caused from adjuncts that are added to the beer ironically, often rice. But I myself prefer sake hot. That's considered by a lot of sake purists as déclassé. I don't (laughs) give a damn. I like my sake hot. I think it's the perfect thing on a cold night. And just like everything, the way people drink things comes and goes. There's fashions, you know, and we'll talk about the movie Sideways or or wine drinking. I hate all that wine snobbery. We'll talk about that sometime in another <laughs> podcast. But that's kind of the way it is with sake. The way that the samurai probably drank it during the Edo period was hot. All right. So <laughs> this whole idea of chilling sake is the current vogue way to drink it. But it's not my way. Some sakes are better served cold. Some are better served hot. But I recommend that anyone have sake the way they like it. My argument for drinking it hot is that good sake is usually chilled. Bad sake is usually hot. But that's just a generality. It's not always the case. You can get good hot sake and you can get good cold sake and vice versa. But if you serve good sake that's supposed to be cold hot, it's still going to be good sake. If you serve bad sake that's supposed to be hot, cold, it's going to be really bad. So either way, if you heat it, you're deviating toward the middle, in my opinion. You're, <laughs> you're, if, you're, if you don't know if you, your sake is good or bad, if you heat it, if it's bad sake, it's going to be better. If it's good sake, it's not going to be as good, but it's still going to be good. You know, so go ahead. Also, there's a good chance that if you're getting your sake at the grocery store, your local liquor store, it is not good sake. I mean, the stuff that they have available here is like $6 a bottle. It's very cheap. Well, I'm going to tell you the two things to look for in sake so that you can get a, uh, a pretty decent sake anywhere you go. Well, not maybe not anywhere you go, but you got to go to a, a liquor <laughs> store that carries a, a number of sakes. And here's what you want to look for. Basically, just like I say with American beers, look for no adjuncts. Look for sake with no adjuncts. And the most common adjunct to add to sake is alcohol. So look at the ingredients list. And if it's got added alcohol, a lot of times the process for making sake is very involved. It involves polishing the rice grains. And so a lot of them don't want to do that. To shorten the process, they just add extra distilled alcohol to it, spirits, to make it and this is headache sake. You don't want that. So look for sake with no added alcohol. The word you want to look for, and I promise I'm not, I'm going to mangle Japanese, but there's only a couple of Japanese words I want you to take away from this podcast. 
Junmai. J-U-N-M-A-I is the romanization of it. Junmai means rice and water. It is purity. That's what you're looking for in sake. You want it to be just rice, water, and then there's the kind of fungus and yeast that is used to ferment it. Some don't even have yeast, just the fungus. The second thing is sake with greater than 30% polished rice grains. And a lot of them will tell you that on the bottle. Then there's other things you can learn, like haya usually is served cold, atsuken is usually served hot. Don't worry about any of that. Just worry about, is it junmai, and does it have greater than 30% polished rice grains? I like ginjo sake, which is a high-quality sake. This is one where it could be called ginjo, it could be called dai ginjo, D-A-I. Dai means great, so like Daigoro from our film, that's in his name. We've talked about the daimyo, the big lords, the great lords. So it's even higher quality ginjo. There's ginjo, there's dai ginjo, and everyone will tell you, especially in America, ginjo sake should be served chilled. Don't listen to them. If you want it hot, like me, have it hot. If you want it cold, have it cold. Just, I recommend looking for ginjo because it's a high quality, and I recommend looking for junmai, which is very pure. If you can find junmai dai ginjo, Go for it. That's really good sake right there. That's all. That's all there is to it, really. Well, that's actually very helpful because I really enjoy sake, but every time I go into the liquor store to buy some, I always forget what I got before, and I feel like I'm spinning a roulette wheel. There are 10 different kinds, and I have no idea what I'm doing. So this tutorial is actually extremely helpful. All I'm saying is looking, look for Junmai sake and look for Ginjo sake. That's it. And then have it however you like it. Okay. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. And Johanna. Signing off.